Well, good morning again. I hope that uh, you're doing very, very well this morning. I hope that, uh, that despite a lot of clouds and rain, that we are feeling the light of the Lord in our lives and the joy of the Lord in our steps. Last week, Julia introduced us to a new series that we're starting looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And it's a timely series that Glenn and Beverly and I decided to follow up our Galatians study with a study on the fruit of the Spirit. And Julia did an incredible job teaching us about self-control last week. Absolutely incredible. Is she here? There she is. Hey, you did such an amazing job. You have such an incredible gift. Make sure you keep your heart and mind open to what God's calling you into for your future when it comes to teaching the word. You did such a good job, so thank you. Yeah, so we're going to keep on moving, and and she did a great job introducing kind of the the basic idea of, of what it means to be led by or walk in the Spirit, but we're going to we're going to hit on it one more time as, uh, as we move into today's message on gentleness. If you remember back to Galatians 5, uh, it was Galatians 5, 16 through 18. We have this is said, okay? Galatians 5, 16 through 18, it says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the, spirit, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Hmm. When I was thinking about this conflict that goes on uh, between spirit and flesh, my mind was drawn to a conversation that Paul is having in his letter to the Romans in Romans 7. Uh, in Romans 7, 15, and so this is, this is a, a text I love, and I need to study a lot more when I get a chance because it's complicated, but I want to read it to you today. It's Romans seven fifteen through 20. It says this, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sin For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sin nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Is that... Did you hear that? And you go, got it. All right, Paul, I'm with you. Doing what I don't want to do, not want to do, do and do, do, do. You know, Uh, you go through it and you're just like, wow, that's that's a whole lot of stuff. That's a whole lot of things that were said. And there was a lot of do's that were mentioned. 
But when we accept Christ into our lives and are born again, our identity is in Christ. Amen? When we accept Christ into our lives and are born again, our identity is in Christ. If you remember back in Galatians 2.20, I have been, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Okay. You with me? You with me? So Paul is talking about his identity being in Christ. And I believe when we look at Romans 7, there is this essence of the spiritual warfare that goes on between flesh and spirit. That makes sense? There's this conflict that's going on between flesh and spirit. But what Paul is saying at the end of that text is that when you've received Christ into your life, when you've accepted your salvation in Jesus Christ and you receive this new identity in him, then the things that you do not want to do that you do, that's not who you are, okay? That's not who you are. Pretty often, you know, you might bump into somebody and they're not behaving the way they should be behaving. And so you say, hey, Harvey, you're not behaving the way you should be. When we deal with Christians, with each other, saved in the identity of Christ, we can say, you're not behaving the way you are. You're not behaving the way you are. The fruit of the Spirit, when we are led and living in the Spirit, is the identifying nature of our faith in Christ. So we can look and say, that is who you are. So in our lives, we surrender ourselves to be led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. But there's conflict. And so what I pray, what I hope as we walk through the fruit of the Spirit in the upcoming weeks is that we can learn to identify the voice of the Spirit. Okay? We can learn to identify the voice of the Spirit. If we know, if we know and are grounded in the scriptural realities of what the fruit is, then we can learn to listen for what's guiding us in that direction, right? To be led by the Spirit. So Lord willing, as we move through these upcoming weeks, you'll be taking notes and keeping track of what the identifying marks of the fruit of the Spirit are so that when you, you can more easily surrender yourself to hear and listen and be led and walk in the Spirit. Dear brother, late John Stott, every morning used to pray a beautiful prayer. You should look it up. It's worth praying. In part of that prayer, he says this, Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When I 
the staff and I are reading a book right now. Some of them might be done with it. I've only kind of hit some different sections. But we've been reading a book called Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit by Christopher Wright. Lovely book. If you have a chance to give it a read, really good. But one of the things that when, when listening to Christopher Wright talk uh, about his relationship with John Stott, who was like a mentor to him, was that John Stott to him was this man who resembled Jesus as closely as he could imagine. And so as John, or as Christopher Wright is talking about the fruit of the Spirit in this book, he encourages us to, like John Stott, be asking the Spirit to ripen this fruit in our lives. And so, Lord willing, maybe you can write yourself a reminder, okay? How about this week, okay? It's not a big ask. I don't think you wake up in the morning and you ask the Holy Spirit to enter and enrich your life, that he would be ripening the fruit as you live today. Think we can do that? I think we can do it, and I'll do it with you, all right? But this is a, this is a, a habit I hope to continue in, in, my, in my daily functionings. But today, we are moving into the fruit of gentleness. Now, gentleness in the Greek is prates. I might have said that right. I might not have. Forgive me. Uh, this word is the root word used for gentleness and also meekness. And so we see that those two words are often interchangeable in translation, okay? The same root word is used when in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And if you look at some of the older translations of the Galatians 5.20, Galatians 5.20-something text, 23, wherever the fruit of the Spirit are, they're in there, Five end of, the, end of chapter 5. You'll see in some of the older translations that it translates this fruit of gentleness as meekness. And so these two things, as you, as you look at different translations, you may see that they're interchangeable, and, and they are. There's, there's a, I think, a, a major overlap with that, and there is some overlap with humility, which we'll see as well. So how do we summarize what biblical gentleness are, is? We would, I would summarize it as strength under control, okay? So gentleness is strength under control. Picture with me a wild stallion, okay? Very powerful, dangerous even. If, and, and, and it, completely unbridled, completely untamed, running around. But when you harness and capture and tame the stallion, its power doesn't change. It is still just as powerful, but that power is used at the will of its master. Okay? The horse's power is now used at the will of its master. And similarly, as we take this journey of understanding gentleness, I would say it is a journey of learning to use strength to life-giving ends. Learning to use strength to life-giving ends. As I thought about teaching about gentleness today, I had to chuckle. Because if you knew me when I was a young man, I was not gentle. Okay? I was aggressive. Now, none of us can be godly gentle unless we're surrendering to the leading of the Spirit. Right? We agree with that? 
Yes. I was the opposite. <laughs> and I believed that might made right and I could bend anything to my will. It was brutal. It was brutal. And so that was how, if you asked any of my siblings, they would tell you that I, with heavy hand, got my way all the time. <laughs> it, it, was, it was awful. But what's amazing, what's amazing is that God took this incredible issue in dealing with the flesh, right? Do we remember in Galatians the, the signs of the flesh? There's a few in there that I can identify with as a young man. Enmity, strife, rivalries, fits of anger. By the power of the Holy Spirit and my surrendering my life to him, God took those things and transformed them into gentleness. Remember the stallion? The power didn't go away, but it's bridled to the master. And Lord willing, I'm, there's, there isn't a day where I'm not thankful for that miracle in my life and that I continue to pray that the Spirit would be ripening and building gentleness into who I am every day. As we look at gentleness today, I've lined up what I am saying are seven marks of gentleness that I see in Scripture. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm sure there are many, many, many more marks of gentleness, but these were the ones that stood out to me as I was studying this week. And I'm going to read through them. Here's the seven, okay? Gentleness diffuses conflict. Gentleness disarms critics. Gentleness is persuasive. Gentleness communicates love. Gentleness is a characteristic of every truly great leader. Gentleness is a witness to non-believers. And gentleness makes us like Jesus. So as we walk through these marks today, like I said, maybe you want to take notes, note down some scripture that can be reminders to you of listening to the Spirit and letting him lead you when being led to gentleness. Gentleness diffuses conflicts. Have you ever been in a situation where one person raises their voice and then someone else raises their voice and then someone else raises their voice and you just have this like one-up situation that goes until it bursts, you know, and some, it, it could burst in a lot of different ways, but it's ugly, Right? Right? I hope you're saying, yeah, like, I don't know, I feel like doing that right now. It's ugly. Proverbs 15.1 says this, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we can know in gentleness that when we engage with a situation where there's escalation, you aren't belittling your power to answer gently. You aren't Reducing the authority, if anything, you're increasing it, and in doing so, you can diffuse conflicts. Number two, gentleness. For many of us, we have things that we're incredibly passionate about or feel strongly about, right? If you, if you feel really strongly about something and you're willing to stand for it, you will be criticized. You will be criticized. And so... In 2 Timothy, it talks about how a 
to take a situation where you're facing critics and turn it with gentleness. I love this text. 2 Timothy 2, 23, okay? If it, you could just take 23 here and we could all just amen and have a good day. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Whew, we could just stop right there, but it keeps going. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, okay? So, so we're looking at 24, yeah, must not be quarrelsome. So not only is it saying don't get involved in foolish and stupid arguments because they produce quarrels, it's saying if you are the Lord's servant, if you are bridled by the master, you must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to who? Everyone. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. Able to teach, not resentful. And verse 25, opponents, so here's the situation. When you get in with a critic, opponents must be gently instructed. Opponents must be gently instructed. Why? Well, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. So Lord willing, you're being led by the Spirit, and your convictions are correct in this critical debate here, right? When you are addressing this person gently, then there's potential not only to disarm the critic, but Lord willing to lead them to repentance. Wow. Let's keep moving. Gentleness is persuasive. Gentleness is persuasive. In a similar note, we often find ourselves with strong convictions about lots of different things. And I've seen this in my own life when engaging with people at work, not here, other work, uh, although I'm sure I've seen it here too. But when engaging with people at work, that when I Engage with them gently, that often they're able to see what I'm trying to say. Okay? Often they're able to see what I'm trying to say. In Proverbs 25, 15, this is from the message. I really like the way it worded this. Patient, persistent, persistence pierces through indifference. Gentle speech breaks down rigid defenses. Gentle Speech breaks down rigid defenses. And so, in your engagements, listen to the Spirit for those opportunities to speak gently because it is persuasive. Gentleness communicates love. This is number four. Now, like I mentioned, we've been reading a book uh, about cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. And as I've been listening to Christopher Wright, there's a few, there's a lot of stories of Jesus that he speaks about because Jesus is our best example, okay? Jesus is our, like, like, like any sermon you give, you could say, Jesus is our best example. When it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, Jesus is our best example in the living. And so he mentions a few stories, and I want to pick out uh, two of these stories, which I believe are aspects of Jesus gently communicating love. The first of these stories is the story of Jesus and the Samaritan uh, woman at the well. And the second of these stories is the story of Jesus 
uh, confronting, we'll call it, Peter after the resurrection. So in the first story, we see, if you remember, uh, I'll give you the text so you have it, sorry. Uh, John 4, 1 through, uh, 1 through 26, if you'd like to look that up later. But in this story, I'm going to summarize here, Jesus is sitting at a well, and he's thirsty. The disciples have gone to get food in town, and a woman approaches the well to collect water. Well, Jesus asks her if she would get him some water, and she's shocked. Why? Well, because she's a Samaritan, and Jesus is a Jew, and Jews didn't like to speak to Samaritans so much. And so... So the fact that Jesus was even talking to her was astounding. Well, they have a discourse, and she, uh, it, during this discourse, Jesus tells her that the water that he offers, offers is a living water that lasts forever. She wants that water. And during the conversation, she mentions being in, uh, well, he, he, he tells her to get her husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. And he goes, you're right, you've had five. And you're living with a man now. Now be careful how you think of this woman because at this juncture in time, men controlled divorce. So we don't know the nature of what was going on that caused her to be in five marriages and now living with a man. But nonetheless, from a Jewish perspective, they would go, that is cringy. Right? <laughs> you know? You know what I mean? But Jesus doesn't have that response. Instead, he gently cares and loves for her, and she loves in his gentleness. Let's move to the conversation with Jesus and Peter. And I've spoken about this conversation before, but we know that Peter denies Christ three times. And what we may not imagine in that is that is an incredible spit in the face to Jesus. About as good as you could get, really. It had been like the night before that Peter had said he'd die for him. And here he is running with his tail between his legs and just saying, I don't know the guy. Calling down curses and get away from me. Leave me alone. I'll have nothing to do with him. When Jesus interacts with him, in John 21, 15 through 19, he had every right to confront this known dismissal of who God was in his life. But instead, he just asks him a simple question. He says, do you love me? He says it three times. And so for each denial, Peter has the opportunity to profess his commitment and love to Jesus and Jesus gently restores him, not only restores him, but says, care for my sheep, care for my sheep. If that doesn't gently communicate love, I don't know what does. Let's keep rolling. So gentleness, we've got gentleness, confuses, con or diffuses, not confuses conflicts, diffuses conflicts, disarms critics, is persuasive, communicates love. And I have said that every truly great leader is gentle. I'm going to make a few arguments here for this. First one that came to mind is King David. Okay, here is, here is a man who uh, 
had slayed his ten thousands while Saul had slayed his thousands. He's a warrior. He is, God had gifted him to be mighty in battle. He was as close to that superhero that we see in the movies as I think you can imagine. And yet, unlike the superheroes, he is gentle. When given a chance to kill his enemy, Saul, who's chasing him down to kill him, he cuts a piece of his robe off and shows it to Saul to let him know he could have ended it, but had instead shown mercy. But a text that I think drew David to mind more than any other was one that uh, when we were in the office this week, Jody mentioned it. And at first I was like, I don't know how that's going to work out. But then as I thought and studied, I was like, this is incredible and speaks into this same gift, the same fruit of the Spirit in David's life. And so we see here in Psalms, so Psalm 18, 33 through 35, Dave is, David is praising God for the incredible anointings that he's given to him in his life. He says, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trained my hands for war so my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supports me. And this is what's remarkable. He ends this with, your gentleness made me great. Not the tens of thousands, not the bending the bow of bronze, not the being a king of a, a mighty nation. No, he accounted his greatness to the Lord's gentleness. As we move down David's line, we see an interesting contrast because I think Solomon in most ways resembled this similar gentleness. But then after Solomon, we have Rehoboam. And Rehoboam shows us a very different story of leadership. Let me put it this way. A leader doesn't have to announce himself, okay? A leader doesn't have to announce himself. Those who think, those who, you know, if, if, if you are a leader, a gentle leader, a, a fruit of the spirit-based leader, then people follow, follow you because they want to learn and live in the spirit like you do, okay? It's a gifting to be a leader, but those that think they lead but don't have anyone following them are just taking a walk, right? If you think you're a leader and you're off, you're just walking. If no one's following you, you're just taking a walk. And Rehoboam walks himself right into a rebellion, right? No one was following him. He took the, some bad advice. He got good advice. Then he got, he got good advice to be like, hey, be gentle. And then he got bad advice and says, Smack them with a stick and beat them into like shape. Make them the way they need to be. We need to be great. He goes, I like that one. And then he goes walking. And all the people are like, yeah, we'll see how long you walk. One of the greatest leaders, maybe, arguably the greatest leader in the Old Testament is Moses. In Numbers 12, 3, Moses is described like this. Now the man Moses was very meek. And that could be translated as gentle or humble. More than all 
all people who are on the face of the earth. Okay? You with me? Moses, arguably one of the greatest leaders in the Old Testament, is described as gentle. Now, if you know Moses a little bit, you can see that gets out of control sometimes, and it always gets him in trouble, right? It's when Moses isn't gentle that things go wrong. But when described in Numbers 12, 3, he's described as the gentlest person on the face of the earth, and that made him great. God's gentleness made him great. Number six, gentleness is a witness to non-believers. Titus 3, 2 says this, to speak evil to no one, to avoid quarreling, we've seen that before, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards who? All people. All people. Speak evil to no one, avoid quarreling, like we saw in Timothy. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. And if you skip down a little bit, it says that Christ, God our Savior, appeared. He saved us. This is verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's doing the work, folks. Hmm. Gentleness is a witness to non-believers. I see this stand out really prominently in 1 Peter 3.15 when it says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, okay? You see what that's saying? What is the nature of the hope that we have? Anyone? Jesus. Jesus is the nature of the hope that we have, right? And so it's saying when speaking with people about Jesus and they ask you any question, why? Why do you have this hope? Why do you feel this way? Why do you treat people this way? Why do I see these things in you that make no sense in how we function in real life? It says, answer them. Give them the answer about the hope that you have, but do it gently and with respect. Doesn't matter if they're Muslim, doesn't matter if they're Jewish. It doesn't matter if they're an atheist. It doesn't matter. Answer them gently and with respect. That gentleness is a witness to non-believers. And finally, I promise you I'm wrapping up here, folks. Bear with me. Gentleness makes us like Jesus. And there is no other text that I think stands out to me more about this incredible, gentle nature of Jesus than Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 29. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you 
will find rest for your souls. Are we a people that promote rest for our souls? Both for us in receiving, but also to others as we deal with them in gentleness and humility from a heart that is seeking to be led and walk in the Spirit? Are we providing rest for people's souls? I want to like, uh, welcome up the worship team at this point. So seven marks that I see of gentleness. Diffuses conflict, disarms critics, is persuasive, communicates love. Every truly great leader is gentle witnesses to non-believers and makes us like Jesus. Our journey of cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is a journey of growing in Christ-likeness. Would you join me this morning and praying that section of John Stott's prayer uh, as we move into worship. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And all God's children said, amen, amen.